we were the captive online service for the Commodore 64. We were bundled with every Commodore 64. We were bundled with every modem they sold. That was a service called Q-Link, Quantum Link or Q-Link. Um, and it was the first online service that used a graphical user interface. Uh, up until then, the dominant players were the Source and CompuServe. Quantum Link, for those days, grew fairly quickly. Within a year, year and a half, we had 50 to 70,000 users, which made us one of the largest players in the business in 19, by 1985. We then proceeded to build on a private label online services for Apple, Apple Link Personal Edition. We built one for Tandy and their Radio Shack computers. We built one for IBM and uh, the Peanut, their entry-level consumer machine. One by one, those companies decided they didn't want to be in the online services business. So Tandy and IBM said, we're out of here, but you can keep the users. We actually had a really good contract with Apple, so they paid us a bunch of money to go away and told us we could keep the users. And we managed to pull those users together into a single service and uh, eventually ran a contest of employees. What should we call the new service? My choice lost, but Steve's choice won. It was called America Online, which as everybody in computers knows, that's too long a word. So very quickly it became AOL and we eventually renamed the company to match the name of the service. That's right. It's time for the Webmasters episode about AOL. Because, uh, of course, we can't have a podcast about the internet without talking about AOL, the company perhaps most synonymous with giving millions of people their first introduction to the internet. Though it's somewhat ironic because AOL was started precisely because most people weren't allowed to use the internet. Strange, huh? Well then, let's see if we can learn how all this strangeness happened, and we're going to do it by talking with Mark Seraf, one of the co-founders of America Online AOL. Are you ready to hear the story? Then let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters. It's your favorite podcast about entrepreneurship and internet history. And if it's not, well, please don't tell me. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I study the history of the internet because I'm interested in what that history can teach us about, well, entrepreneurship. I need to start this episode with a bit of a confession. I never actually used AOL. My parents were too cheap to pay for it. Uh, If you're listening, Mom, sorry for throwing you under the bus like that. Uh, But to be fair, AOL was legitimately expensive. Back then, they were charging by the hour. And for a kid like me who could spend hours and hours exploring on his computer, that would have gotten pretty costly. More importantly, the fact that I never used AOL is important to this episode because even though I never actually used it, I still feel like I know exactly what it was. I suspect that's true for a lot of you listening. Even if you never really used AOL, you definitely know about it. And that's a testament to just how big and impactful the company became at its peak. I'm excited to talk about how it got there with our guest, Mark Seraf. But before I do that, I want to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor. 
Webmasters is being brought to you with the help and support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes everything from e-commerce stores and Shopify sites to Amazon FBAs, SaaS apps, content websites, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work-from-anywhere internet business you can think of. If you are running one of those kinds of companies, it's profitable, and you've been thinking about selling it, you should consider contacting Latonas. Their incredible team of brokers has been helping companies just like you sell their businesses, and they can definitely help you sell yours. Also, if you happen to be interested in buying an internet business, Latonas is a great place to start. You can just head on over to the Latonas website where you'll see tons of listings for all of the profitable internet businesses they're currently helping to sell. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. When I think about AOL, I think of the mid to late 1990s and the initial boom of the public internet and the World Wide Web. I imagine that's true for a lot of you, too. Basically, if you were alive back then, you had nearly an infinite supply of AOL CD-ROMs you could use as, well, drink coasters. And to be clear, and as we're going to hear in this episode, that was by design. But the thing that might surprise you about AOL, or, or at the very least, I know it surprised me, is just how old AOL is. AOL actually started well before the mid-90s. That also means the co-founders of AOL are a little older than a lot of the entrepreneurs we hear from on Webmasters, and their initial experiences with computers are a bit different. I'm old, so this goes back a ways. I took a course between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college. It was a summer school for fun kind of thing. Uh, This was in 1966. I was interested in two things at the time. I was interested in chemistry, and I didn't know about computers, but I took a computer course. Uh, the chemistry course was taught by a Nobel laureate, whose name I don't remember, and I didn't understand a word he said. And the computer course uh, was taught by some, in hindsight, probably 26-year-old professor, uh, because UT didn't have a computer science department at the time. And I fell in love with what he was talking about. You know, the next hard stop, I went off for my freshman year to MIT and absolutely despised it. Came back and got my undergraduate degree at the University of Texas, um, where I did discover computers and discovered the non-computational side of computers. Uh, My senior project was writing a printer, since in those days printers were the size of refrigerators, and only had uppercase characters. And the classics department needed a way to print documents in Greek. So I wrote software where they could key punch their Greek on cards. Uh, I would read them and draw the characters on a microfiche camera and print out the microfiche for them so they could get copies of their stuff on paper. Two years later, I went back to MIT for graduate school Um, And in the first sort of let's get acquainted, what department do you want to be in? uh, I met a guy named J.C.R. Licklider. Lick. He's one of the guys that's got a legitimate claim to being the father of the Internet, um, or at least the father of the ARPANET. And not only fell for Lick, but he had a little group called Dynamic Modeling and Computer Graphics, which is where 
MIT's ARPANET division was. The ARPANET was 20 computers big at that point. And it was like a light bulb went on, you know, this way we could use computers to talk to each other. And that set the tone for an entire career. By the way, for those who may not recognize the name, it's worth pointing out that J.C.R. Licklider really is one of the most important people in Internet history. As in, his vision for an interconnected computer system is pretty much the reason everything you do today exists the way it does. I suppose we could argue that's for better or for worse. Still, the point is, learning about the Internet from J.C.R. Licklider would be like learning printing from Gutenberg or learning about manufacturing from Henry Ford. It's pretty cool. And as you'd expect, being in that position, learning about networking from the father of the Internet, well, technically the ARPANET, the Internet's predecessor, is what nudged Mark down his eventual career path toward AOL. It was serendipity. The graduate school group that I was in, traditionally, you graduated and went to work for a company called BBN, Bolt, Brannick and Newman. Their main thing was they were an acoustic research firm. They were also the commercial contractor that ran the ARPANET. So I don't do theory. So when it was time to switch from a master's degree to a PhD, I decided it was time to leave. I went to BBN. They offered me, I think, three different jobs. One of them was supporting a new company that they were spinning off in Washington called Telenet Communications. One of the very first data communication networks. And they said, why don't you go to Washington and uh, meet the guys? And since you're going to be supporting them, make sure you get along with them. Telnet was the first commercial packet switch network in the United States. In other words, it was the first data network of what would become the public Internet. And Mark was basically helping to get it built. So I spent a couple of days in Washington, and at the end of the trip in Washington, um, the guys at Telenet said, why do you want to sit in Boston and support us when you can just move to Washington and be part of us? So I thought about it, took them up on it, uh, became number 12 at Telenet, uh, a company that was eventually went public and ended up as part of Sprint many, many years later. And that was the start. And as most people discover, once you do a startup, it's very difficult to do a real job. You want to go find another startup. You don't want to stay working for a big company. Uh, I lasted a while at AOL because it was when entrepreneurialism was popular. And we spun off an inside group uh, to build what turned out to be the first commercial electronic mail system back in 1978 or 79, service called Telemail. When that project wound down, I ended up in a staff job that I just despised. And a friend came along and said, I'm starting a new company. What do you think? And the next thing I knew, I was number four at another company. Uh, and that led sort of a sequence of five startups in the for-profit world that ended with AOL and kind of let me retire at a ripe young age. So I'm wondering, could you be a bit more explicit? 
I guess, how did being employee number 12 at basically the first Internet data network lead you to starting AOL? It was a sequence of failures, basically, that led to AOL. The guy that came and got me from Telenet, a guy named Bill Von Meister, uh, who was a legend in his day, he started actually the first home computer service company, a company called The Source, uh, which he eventually sold to, of all people, Reader's Digest. Bill came and got me. He was building a system to sell music electronically, a company called Digital Music. It was my first lesson in uh, content matters because we got blasted by the record retailing industry. And shortly after that, the record companies pulled their product from the service. So we had a wonderful technology and no music to sell. Uh, that company from start to putting it in a shoebox lasted about six or seven months. We had noticed when we were building the interface that we didn't quite use the satellite channel completely that we had bought from whoever you bought a satellite channel from in those days. And we said, you know what? We can pump data through the, this little extra bandwidth. You know, somebody was sending video. There was probably 50 kilobytes of data left over, which was a huge amount of data in those days. So we built a service that could download. It was a one, one-way service, um, could download any kind of data into, we didn't know what yet. The first product, we built a cartridge for the Atari 2600, the first popular gaming system that the Atari thought was a cartridge and the telephone system thought was a modem. It was a blazingly fast 1200 baud half duplex, so one way modem. And we would download video games into your console and you could play it as long as you left the power on. You know, then at the end, you would upload your scores and we would give you scholarships and cars. And we launched it at a consumer electronics show, very strong response, uh, but six months between the show and delivery. And during that six months, uh, Atari became, I believe, the first company in history to lose a billion dollars in a quarter. And the first round of the video game industry imploded. The same group of people then tried to do the same kind of one-way service for this newfangled device that had just been released called the Apple II. We partnered with Bell South to provide services for the Apple II. And just as we were about to launch, the consent decree came down, which at the time prohibited what were then called the baby bells, the companies that had been spin off from AT&T, uh, prohibited them from getting into the data services business. So overnight, our partner disappeared and we were without any distribution channel. So that company didn't make it. That was a little longer, a little more expensive. We burned through a lot of money and took two years. But at that point, we kind of knew we had something. So most of the same team, with the exclusion of Von Meister, who the investors wouldn't invest with again, the same team flipped into a new company called Quantum Computer Services. 
And we built that company on a partnership with Commodore Computer, who was one of the best pieces of technology of that era. They built a very low-end computer, cost less than $200, uh, mostly aimed at gaming, sold at toy stores, not in computer stores. And we were the captive online service for the Commodore 64. That online services platform for the Commodore 64, the company called Quantum Computer Services, well, that's the company that got renamed America Online. What's interesting about it, from a timeline perspective, is of course that all this is happening well before the World Wide Web launches in the early 1990s. Heck, it's actually happening well before the public internet even exists. So what was the internet like back then and what the heck was AOL selling? As you might expect, Mark has a helpful answer. When AOL came online, the answer to what was the internet is easy. It was illegal. The government had just started the migration from the ARPANET, the original government-built network, to the internet. But the rules were that you could not use it for commercial purposes. Okay. There was a rule for it. I don't remember what the rule was called. But if you tried to sell access to the Internet, that was a federal felony, actually. Okay. Eventually, the government woke up and realized they had something that they could stop paying for, commercializing it, uh, and they opened the door up. But AOL probably got started in 1984, the internet wasn't accessible by consumers until I want to say 89 or 90. Uh, it's been a while, but that's the rough timeline. By the time the internet was something real, we already had several million subscribers. Okay. It was a closed garden. You couldn't access anything else. You couldn't access anything else without a lot of work. In the back room, we had interfaces to things like the American Airlines Saver System, which was the big airline booking system, with all kinds of functionality that today you take for granted on the Internet, but it was a closed garden. Eventually, the reality is we didn't have any choice but to open up the garden because we were a very customer-driven organization, and customers wanted access to the outside world. So I think we started by opening up access to Usenet, the old bulletin board system that predates the internet. So we started offering access to things that we didn't necessarily control. Eventually, I think the first step was we offered two-way email ability so that you could get emails out to the broader world and back in again. And as time went on, there became more and more demand from the consumer to get access to the internet and more and more resistance from the content provider to provide content to a walled garden. So if it was illegal to commercialize the internet back then, what exactly were you selling? We weren't connected to the internet at that point at all. And we were offering services that had nothing to do with the internet originally. By the time that we started building the interconnections, that was after the day Netscape came along and the internet had begun to open up. Wow, okay, that makes a 
ton of sense now. I always remember AOL being criticized for being a quote unquote walled garden, but that didn't start because you all were trying to be proprietary. AOL was a walled garden because it actually began as something that had to be basically its own private network. Yeah, I mean, the walled garden was really the only option at the time we started. And there were a handful of these walled gardens. There was us, there was CompuServe, uh, the source was kind of on its last leg by then. The big guys were trying to get a service called Prodigy started, which frankly they threw way too much money at and never really took off. So there really weren't any alternatives. I think we had worked early on with some ways to, you know, swap emails with CompuServe and things like that. But really, if you wanted to offer consumer online services, you had to build it from the ground up. There was nothing to connect to out there. When we started, there really wasn't even a network, a data communications network. The first company I was with, Telenet, one of the breakthroughs that kind of created the online services world was Telenet was a business-only service, which meant we had a nationwide high-capacity network. It was high-speed for its day. I think the backbone ran at 19K. But at 5 o'clock, traffic on the network went to zero. In fact, the source was the first one that came to Telenet and said, you know what, sell me your nighttime access for pennies. It's just sitting there, you know, doesn't cost you anything to sell it to me, and it's another revenue source. So that's why when Q-Link, the very first service we built, the company that became the company that was AOL, the very first service we built, you could only access the service from six at night until seven in the morning, which was a programmer's dream because it meant we had like eight hours a day to mess with the system. But you couldn't afford to operate it during the day because your networking costs, the cost to get the bits from California to Virginia, went from 50 cents an hour to 550 an hour during the day. So when talking about a company like AOL, I guess the question I have to ask is, how the heck did it become so big? How did it go from that obscure private network in the 80s to a household name around the world? Um, I'd like to believe the appeal was there from the beginning. We saw that in sort of the viral nature of how it grew. If you define viral in numbers that are appropriate to 1981, 1982. How did we appeal? We went and hired probably one of the best marketing people I've ever run across in Jan Brandt, who's the one that came up with the concept of put as many discs as you can in the hands of everybody in the United States. So we bundled with modems, we bundled with computers, we put them on the counter at the post office, we bundled them in magazines, and this was all Jan, and effectively got to the point where it was easier to subscribe to AOL than it was to not subscribe to AOL. It really took off. Yeah, okay. I, I definitely remember those CDs. In fact, I'm pretty sure everyone who's alive then remembers those CDs. Uh, and, and okay, so that was Jan Brandt heading up marketing, 
And I know the founding team of AOL was you, Steve Case, Jim Kinsey, and William Von Meister. What exactly was your role in building the company and its growth? You know, I've always called myself the CTO because it's a title that people understand. I think officially in the early days, I was VP of operations and engineering or something like that. And my job for the first three to five years was build it and run it. So everything from customer service to running the data centers to writing the code to handling it when the network broke in the middle of the night, um, that was all my responsibility until the company really started to grow. And how long were you with the company? I left in 96. So I was there from about 12 years. 12 years is a good bit of time, but I guess I find myself wondering if you left in 96, that was really when AOL was taking off, right? So why did you decide to leave then? Um, there's two separate decisions in there. One is leaving and one is retiring, which are kind of different things. Um, leaving, it was time. You know, as I said before, I'm not a big company person. Okay. At the point where my group had grown to, you know, hundreds of people instead of a handful of people, when it had grown to the point where I didn't know everybody that worked for me, it just wasn't my kind of job anymore. And that was the point where we turned to, of all places, IBM to bring in the kind of talent we needed. And we just hit the jackpot on guys like Mike Connors and Matt Korn and Barry Appleman, who really had the ability, not just as technology people, but as management people, to take the organization to the next step. I should mention that we actually already talked with one of those people here on Webmasters in episode number 44. We heard from Barry Appleman, the man who created AOL Instant Messenger, often affectionately known as AIM. As we discussed in that episode, for a lot of people, even if they were never AOL subscribers, they definitely had an AIM account, myself included. Be sure to check out that episode if you'd like to learn more about the relationship between AIM and the overall growth of AOL, as well as how the new series of execs who came in after Mark thought about scaling the company. But for now, back to Mark's story. So leaving the job that I had was a fairly easy decision. Um, I hung around for a couple of years. They created a program called AOL Fellows which was sort of outside the management tree. And your charge was go around and find interesting things to do and do them. And I think over the years, there were, you know, half a dozen AOL fellows at various times. That lasted me a couple of years, sort of going back to being a programmer again. And then about that time, both of my kids graduated from high school and I was ready to come back to Texas. So I retired. Leaving, I had no regrets. Retirement was a mistake. You know, I probably had two or three more companies in me, but never got around to them. Like most people, wealth is interesting. Uh, mega wealth was never terribly interesting to me, except for a very brief period. I haven't had a paying job in, you know, 30 years. So I can't complain about the decision too much. <laughs> no, I, I guess not. And out of curiosity, 
beyond the financial windfall of starting a company like AOL, could you speak to the experience of having built a company that was so impactful in the expansion of the internet and popular culture? I mean, it was it was exciting. I mean, people knew who AOL was. You know, those were the days when I was asked to do commencement speeches and things like that. So, in all honesty, having started in the early '70s using PDP-10s for email and things like that, a lot of this felt kind of inevitable to me. Not necessarily that AOL would would lead, but that the industry would be huge wasn't a big surprise. Okay. I was obviously thrilled that it it happened to be AOL. I mean, it worked out pretty well for me. And frankly, it was fun. Even the two predecessors that failed were fun. You were developing new stuff. Those were the days when you came home to visit family and they didn't understand you when you told them what you did for a living. And then all of a sudden, your grandparents were using the system. So watching the world change was just a huge amount of fun. I think we were extremely well positioned to be the dominant player. And you all were, of course, the huge player, but not so much anymore. I know you weren't necessarily involved in the later decisions of the company, but can you maybe give your perspective on what happened and why AOL wasn't able to maintain its dominant market position? I think we made a couple of pretty huge mistakes. First mistake I'll take some blame for, and that was we stuck with the walled garden a little too long. Okay. Not just in terms of interfacing with the network, but the mechanisms that we had developed internally and chose to keep proprietary would have positioned us far better had we made them public domain. Like anybody who had to do, who was doing this kind of thing at the time, we had an HTML-ish protocol that we used between our client and our servers. Okay. Um, and we chose to keep that proprietary. Had we released it at the right point in time, it's not inconceivable there wouldn't have been an HTML. We chose to keep it proprietary for too long. So I think that was the first mistake. The second mistake is hard to call a mistake. It didn't work. The obvious one, the merger. The merger Mark's talking about here, by the way, is AOL's merger with Time Warner. When it happened, it was the largest merger in history, representing two companies with a combined value of around $360 billion. I get to look at it from a distance because I was gone by then. The merger was brilliant. And that's an easy statement to make in foresight, not so easy to make in hindsight. What we had learned over and over and over again was what drove the online services business was content. Again, in hindsight, not a surprise. You know, when we built our first systems, what we sold was encyclopedias and news service and stock tickers and all of those kinds of things. What people used was chat and instant messaging and email. So we had learned repeatedly that content was king. A combination of what was at the time one of the top technology companies in the space 
and what at the time was one of the top content companies in the space, putting those two things together was an absolutely brilliant move. The thing we missed is that when you put two companies together, you put two sets of people together. You put people together with different attitudes, different goals, different ways of getting things done, different generations, and they didn't work together. And eventually we spent, we, the company spent so much time and energy and effort trying to make that work. So are you saying that you you think the merger didn't work because of the people more so than the content or products or basically the underlying idea behind the merger? I, I, I think there were too much effort went into merging the teams and not into growing into merging the businesses. Frankly, I still believe it could have been successful. Surprisingly, had either team been weaker, either the Time Warner team or the AOL team been a weaker team so that one of the teams could come out dominant, I think the merger would have worked. And just to go back to the other issue you mentioned, the decision to keep AOL proprietary and its own walled garden for too long, you said that was on you. Why did you make that decision rather than opening AOL up sooner? Frankly, we were the only game in town. So in the very short term, we had nothing to gain by going public with the information. I and others were a little too short-sighted in seeing the longer view. If I had to do it again, we would have published our proprietary protocols. And I think even if the company still would have been on its trajectory, the protocols would have survived. Okay, so AOL isn't what it was or could have been, but I mean, it still had a massive impact on the world, right? As you look back at your career and what you built, how would you describe AOL's legacy? Oh, I, if, if you look at the numbers... In their context, we did exactly what we set out to do. We brought America online. When we started the largest service, offering services to the consumer had about a quarter of a million people. Okay. Within a few years, we had 30 million people online. That turned out to be the beginning of an industry rather than, you know, the beginning of AOL dominance, but that industry wouldn't be there had it not been for us. I mean, we were the proof of concept that there is a business today, a business that we can't imagine living without. We were the ones that proved that that was real. When you look at that world you helped create, what do you think about it? Does it live up to your expectations? Are, are there any surprises? It felt inevitable to us. Like it does with most people today, if you've never used the Internet and you begin to use the Internet, you very quickly get to the point where it's a utility. You know, it's something that's part of my life. And that was something I think we saw in a small scale early on. So I'm not sure anything that's happened particularly surprises me. Like everybody, I've got concerns that the Internet is a megaphone, a megaphone for good things. It's also a megaphone for bad things. I don't know how we fix that, but it's hard to imagine these days life without 
our devices and our internet. Basically, I have all the knowledge of the world in my hand. Out of curiosity, do you give much thought to where things are going? Are you excited about any of them? Cryptocurrency and metaverses and Web3, any of those kinds of buzzwordy things? Yeah, but at a low level. I mean, I've hit an age where, frankly, a lot of that stuff I'm probably not going to see. I think some of the promise of the new technologies are built on the false premise that infrastructure is free and that if we just distribute it enough, it's not going to cost us anything. That was a problem we faced constantly. I mean, somebody somewhere somehow is paying for the internet and to believe that the fact that I can get on Google and do something and I don't seem to be paying for it, it's kind of a false premise. Um, so I think a lot of the new technologies, I think Web3 is going to discover this pretty quickly, that ultimately, if there's nobody to pay for the service in some way, the service doesn't exist. Interesting final thoughts from one of the men who helped commercialize the Internet and bring it to millions of people. If there's nobody to pay for a service, in some ways, the service doesn't exist. No matter what people say about distributed technologies, creator empowerment, immersive communities, whatever future directions the internet goes, there will always be AOL-type companies around. They make their money by creating and supporting the backbone of our connected world. Without them, everything else we do just can't happen, including things like this podcast. So yeah, seems like that's a pretty good trade, especially if you enjoyed listening. If you did, I hope you'll take a minute or two to share this podcast with a friend. You can also help us out by rating and reviewing Webmasters on your favorite podcasting platform. I'd like to thank Mark Sarah for taking the time to share his story and the story of AOL with all of us. I also want to thank our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together the episode. And a thanks to our sponsor, Latona's, for all of their support. Don't forget to check out latonas.com if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions about the episode, let us know. You can find us on Twitter. We're at WebmastersPod. You can find me there too. I'm at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. Or find me on my website, AaronDinan.com, where you'll also find other great content about startups, entrepreneurship, and business. One final suggestion before we go, please don't forget to subscribe to Webmasters. Do that right now, and you'll have our newest episodes as soon as we release them. I look forward to sharing our next story with all of you. Until then, <laughs> and if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know why I'm really excited about this particular moment in relation to this episode's guest. I think it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. Wow. So by working on the core infrastructure of the Internet so early on, you must have been involved with making some really important decisions. Any interesting examples you can share? This is going to sound very egotistical, but I'll say it anyway. It actually goes to way back before AOL. 
in the very early days of the ARPANET, I was not the bits guy. I didn't care about the lowest level protocols. I cared about the applications. And I remember sitting in a room with some very smart people arguing about email protocols. And I fought tooth and nail that email originators should be validated. You should not be able to send an email that was not from you. And I lost that argument in 1973. And I believe we are still paying for that today. So wait, you mean I can blame you for the fact that we have spam or or rather blame you for not fighting hard enough to prevent it? You could have thanked me if it wasn't there. (laughs) There we go. That's That's a much better way of phrasing it. Let's go with that. 